Hey lovers, welcome to episode 7 of Vocal About It. Today we are going to talk about the discriminations around physical health that women of color have to face, how racism creeps into hospitals, gynecology and doctor's cabinet, and we will also break down racist stereotypes and explain why every black person is not a great basketball player. All right, lovers, today we are pretty excited to talk about this topic. And I would like to start by sharing a little anecdote of mine and just to illustrate a bit of the discussion that we're going to have. There are a lot of different stereotypes around women of color, and in my case, specifically black women, and how performant we are supposedly at sports. Uh, so when we talk about physical health, sports is definitely an, an important aspect of that. And for example, I mean, for those who never saw me in real life, I'm 1 meter 77 and I weighed 60 kg. And I've been that height and that weight for like a solid 10 years. Oh my God, I'm so old like that. No yes. ageism. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> yeah, also. Um, I used to be, when I was much younger, very fit. I used to love sports and like, you know, playing different sports and like always being very, very active. With age, <laughs> I have to say that I got a little bit lazy. And I've always been very lucky with my uh, metabolism that I just don't gain weight, which is pretty fabulous. So I've always been lucky to basically eat whatever shit I want and do whatever I want. And I basically okay. always have this little abs, you know, and that, that little lean body of mine. So that's been, uh, this has been fun. <laughs> I've been enjoying that very much. I bet. And uh, yeah, I've basically had like, you know, ups and downs when it comes to my motivation towards sports. Yeah, but funny enough, people always, like literally always, I'm not saying like sometimes or whatever, always have the assumptions of me being super fit. And they always assume that like, I must be doing tons of sports and loving it and stuff, uh, which <clears throat> it's uh, debatable. Uh, and also it's interesting how when I'm in dynamics, and that's also when I was younger, but when I'm in dynamics where, you know, you play like team sports and people need to choose, okay, who's in my team? Everybody was fighting for me to be in their team only to regret that later. <laughs> but it's interesting in terms of the stereotype because people think, seeing me the way they do, mm -hmm. that number one, I'm black, so I mean, I have to be an amazing, at least basketball and football player. And runner. And runner, of course. And because I look, you know, quite thin and tall, I mean, for sure, I mean, that's, that's gonna be amazing for their team. So that's just an anecdote of my youth and I guess my life, but that illustrates a lot what I guess a lot of people just project onto black people, onto women of color, and onto the interest section of women of color and looking fit mm -hmm. i guess that's what they get for that huh <laughs> <laughs> and did you ever feel like you had to adapt and fulfill this expectation and then overperform for in order to actually fit in or did you just like not give a shit at all and um i think i i, I mean the more i got older the more i gave less shit about a lot of things in this life <laughs> <laughs> but I think when I was younger, I, I remember this particular sports teacher that I had when I moved to Paris, actually, and I think I was then 13. And funny enough, that sports teacher was coming from my hometown. Oh, yeah. So she was, you know, right away, like there was an, an emotional connection kind of thing. And uh, that was still back in the days when I, when I was super active and really good and stuff. But still, I mean, some things, because you, you don't choose the kind of sports that you do, yeah, when you go to school and uh, this teacher basically decides. So she was like having tracks and then dance. And, I mean, some stuff I wasn't really into. But because she had such high expectations on me, because I was like, you know, a bit taller than the others and she was seeing me as like extra super fit, mm -hmm. then I kind of, that definitely is the period of my life where I feel like, okay, I can't let a sister down. <laughs> 
I need to represent. So yeah, that's definitely when I, I think I overdid it just to make sure the image is um, yeah, represented. Yeah. I think I can relate to that in the way that I think there was no um, specific stereotype about me, about like Arabic looking women being very good at in one kind of sports because it's just not out there. Mm -hmm. But um, I still had the feeling that I had to overperform and somehow disturb an expectation that I'm maybe not sportive at all or something. Mm -hmm. And so I would always go the extra mile. Right. I would always try to be just as hard and as tough as the boys my age when I was teenage, pre-teenage, something about that. And I was always really proud when, I don't know, when I would get a ball in my face and I wouldn't make a sound. And then afterwards the trainer would be like, whoa, whoa, Sarah, she's such a tough one and mm. shit like that. And I would be really proud of that, right. which looking back is quite absurd mm -hmm. because I wanted to not fulfill this image. Well, I had to pay for that. I had to take the toll. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think this is where it starts to get harmful when you can't just be a regular kid and play as you want and perform as you want and just be good or bad or whatever and just do it and don't have to run after something or uh, try to prevent that somebody could think of you as whatever. And yeah. yeah. And being so afraid to be perceived as weird if you're not into sports. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Because you're, you're expected so much and so highly by everyone pretty much to be in love with sports and to be so fit and to be so sporty and stuff just because you're fucking black or of color, which is a bit ridiculous. Yes. So yeah, that's just one, one thing that we wanted to touch on to introduce the topic. So of course, in terms of physical health, sports is an important aspect, but there's also sexual health, there's reproduction health, there's all the discrimination that comes around women of color exaggerating their pain and then not being trusted by doctors and nurses and all the medical corp when it comes to them being treated medically, which is very tricky. We want to touch on all these different aspects yes. of physical health and the discriminations around it that we have to face. Yes, exactly. So I think what you told me earlier is that, okay, there are these stereotypes about bodies of color, that they are somehow superior by nature in the way that you are born and you are very fast and you're very good at basketball and you're very good at whatever is dancing. Any physical activity is somehow in your blood. Yeah. So it's not that you have to train really hard and work really hard for that, but it's just a given thing because these people just have it in their genes some kind of way you wanted to say that there is uh, on top of that there are there are several different mechanisms of institutional racism that also keep on reproducing these uh, images yes because coming back for example to last year's french national football team who got a bit of um, discussions around the fact that majority of the players were people of color, were guys of color, a lot of them with African descent. And there was a lot of discussions around the fact that a lot of people from the diaspora, from the African diaspora in France, which I'm part of, were calling them Africans, which they are. You know, but there was a whole discussion about, no, but they're not Africans, they're French. Mm -hmm. Well, bitch, they can be both. How about that? <laughs> yeah. And people had a really hard time accepting this. And, and I think there's this and also the fact that there's still a lot of questions around how come the national team of a country like France has a majority of people of color mm -hmm. in, you know, that football team. And where are the white people, basically? 
And there are very simple explanations around that, which I'm really inviting all of you to Google and research on in your own languages and stuff. But it's very clear, at least for France, I'm talking, and it just applies to a lot of different countries. The fact that there's a majority of black guys in that team is not because black people are better as ports. It is not because the fact that they're better equipped, that there's something in their blood, that there's something in their vein that make them run faster, that make them be better at fucking football. Okay, these, my friends, are based on colonial stereotypes of the black men being stronger, fitter, and just better equipped at doing less intellectual stuff. Yes. Let's not forget. Yes. The fact that they're out there is because the way France is organized in terms of recruiting their players when it comes to national teams, is organized in a way that they go into certain cities and they go into certain suburbs and they go into certain neighborhoods where people are poorer than the average. And what you see in France is that there's a massive correlation between being a person of color and being poor. Because of institutional racism, you get less opportunities. Even when you go further in your studies, you just happen to get jobs where you're less paid and such. So it's basically a cycle where you end up in this kind of neighborhood. And so some of our brothers and sisters out there, sports is the only way out. So they don't take this as a hobby. They don't take this as a game. They take this as a massive opportunity to get out of this neighborhood, to get out of this social situation that they are stuck in, and to be able to just bring all of their, their families with them, make more money, get more visibility, and just make a laugh for themselves. And so when you have this kind of opportunity in front of you, you don't fucking play. No, it's you not play. a game. It's not a game. You literally play for your life. Yes. Yeah. So of course, then proportionally, you're going to see more black people and more people of color out there on the fields. It's just, it just makes sense. Yeah. And it is different for some countries, yes. But that's one important explanation that I want to talk about to also deconstruct, meaning really breaking down the different stereotypes that come into place when we talk about this specifically. Yes, yes exactly. And there are also extreme power hierarchies at play. Yes. Because, of course, when you're desperate and when you're marginalized and you get such an opportunity, you would at no point say no. Mm -hmm. And you would probably not ask for that much money mm -hmm. than when you are a saturated white kid yes. who does it for fun. So I think there are several power dynamics that are often not seen and a kind of wicked dream of everybody can do it from out of the slums. You can be a superior player, which is just reproducing the cycle on and on. And mm -hmm. I mean, who are the millions of kids of color out there who did not get this one opportunity? Yes. So, exactly. yeah. And yeah. they are totally made invisible. And this is, this is bullshit. It's bullshit. And there's a whole other controversy around friends exploiting African players, actually, but that's a whole other discussion. Mm -hmm. But that makes me think real quick. There's a documentary out there that's called um, Je ne suis pas un singe, which means I'm not a monkey. And that's specifically a documentary touching on racism within the football industry, mm -hmm. which I invite all of your French-speaking babes, uh, I do believe it's um, subtitled though, to look at it because it's, it's very real and that's exactly what we talk about. <laughs> You know, what I think is just so weird is that there are just those images that are out there and there is nothing behind it. Yeah. So people just assume it and are just like, oh, the, the strong black man or the tough woman of color. But nobody is really um, putting more knowledge behind this. Mm -hmm. 
and trying to actually make research on it that would help us all in the medical sector and that would be knowledge-based yeah. and so we could actually get the real access to healthcare that we need because I feel like there are just those two-dimensional images out there that are basically still from colonial times that have not been questioned until now and people just um, make this very quick association of, I think, two lines. Oh, it's a woman of color. Either she's a tough animal and takes it rough and it doesn't really matter because she's used to rough treatment, so fuck it. Mm -hmm. Or... If she is in pain and she is loud, then she is overdramatizing everything. And then you should better ignore her and not treat her as a human being who is in pain. Yes. Thank God that we are... No. <laughs> Thank the universe. Thank white baby Jesus, yes. you mean? Thank white baby Jesus that this discussion is coming up more and more and that it's, that it's out there now. But I feel like... It could be 150 years ago when it comes to women of color and pain. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I think it's extremely prevalent in the medical industry and in hospitals. And when we go see our doctors and stuff, I think you have a very interesting uh, anecdote when it comes to that, mm -hmm. that really illustrates the racism that is in place when mm -hmm. it comes to this. Yeah, actually, that's um, a story that is already 10 years ago. Yeah, it happened 10 years ago. I was 16. I was fooling around with friends. We were running on the streets. It was raining. All of a sudden I had a really bad accident so I fell and dislocated my knee and um, I was in excruciating pain. Girl of course. On a side note I know that I can take a lot of pain because all my doctors are always telling me how great I am at handling it and don't make a sound and don't even move and whatever which is problematic per se already. So I knew that I can take a lot but this was the worst physical pain I've ever experienced. And so when the paramedics arrived and I was screaming and I was really in, a, in a, an extremely bad place, they refused to pick me up until I calmed down and talked to me like, yeah, you know, I mean, we would like to help you, but unfortunately, if you don't calm down, there's nothing we can do. We can't, we can't transport you when you're as hysterical. And I was like, fucking hell, fucking, fucking hell. hell. What Just do I like do? like you're making a scene, yeah? Yes, this exactly, exactly. As, and And... There, these three dimensions came at play. I was a teenager, I was a woman, and I was a woman of color. Mm. So on those dimensions, I was just over-exaggerating. I was just being dramatic. And I felt like so exposed. I felt like, okay, fuck, there is no way out of this. I have to contain this worst physical pain and somehow swallow it down because if not, I'm not going to be helped. And you're powerless in that yes. situation as well, which is horrible. Yes, Fucking hell. And that was really the single worst experience I had with the medical sector ever. But since then, my whole approach towards it changed in the way that, yeah, I don't trust it in the way that they would be aware of things like that. And on the other hand, that they would take proper care of me. So I'm going to have a surgery actually in, in a week again. And I'm thinking about how I could make it clear that I have those high levels of pain. I need a lot of anesthetics. And when I'm screaming, this means it's really bad. And uh, yeah, that made me think that how must it be if you have this strong lobby behind you who is researching for uh, specific health issues that you have, who know all about it and just treat you properly as the white man. And um, yeah, this made me realize how extreme the divergences are between every white man yeah. who would have had the exact same accident I had. It must be so chill of a life, I yes. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking yeah. Because now basically 
I mean, imagine, the, not imagine because you're actually going through it, but the emotional labor mm -hmm. that you are going through, you're going to get an operation in a week. Yes. You've been thinking about this for a solid week mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're basically going to have to brief and educate all of the people exactly. in that medical institution that are going to work with you just to make sure that you deconstruct all the potential racism and that you get fair treatment. Exactly. Like this is absurd. Yes, it is. I have to tell them, look, there are those stereotypes out there. Exactly. Please be aware of it when you treat me mm -hmm. because that is not actually at place. It's yeah. just an image that makes you believe that even though... Mm. And um, yeah, so I have to actually do informative work and inform experts on that and that, that that makes me think also of an anecdote that i had with my mama last summer i don't know if i mentioned already but my mama she's very active yeah so she loves to run around go hiking like do all the things and so we were on holiday in france somewhere in the east and then she broke her wrist while hiking and then the ambulance came whatever so she had to have a an emergency operation and in her wrist which was extremely painful <sighs> and um so i went with her to the hospital but i couldn't stay the night so the, I, i just you know went back to the hotel and came back in the morning And she told me about that story and she's very fierce when, when she tells me these kind of stories. And I can very much see how she treated the nurse <laughs> when that happened. But basically, she's also highly tolerant to pain. But when the anesthesia went away, the nurse told her, just, you know, call me when it goes away, when you feel a little ticklish and then I'll come to give you another dose. That she went away, my mom was like, oh, she screamed extremely badly because it was just so unbelievably painful. And the nurse took forever to come. And he was driving my mom like nuts. She was just like, this is not happening. I'm basically dying here. The pain is horrible. Can someone please fucking come and take care of me, yeah? And that was the deal also. The nurse comes, very chill, you know, and just tells, okay, uh, you need to calm down. Huh? It's not like you're giving birth or something. Like it's not... The nerve, the nerve. My mama being in her most vulnerable position didn't say she just said like, okay, please don't just give me that dose, yeah? Gives her the dose, my mom goes to sleep, all good. The next morning, because <laughs> she usually has like a time where she thinks about how she's going to roll through, yeah? So the next morning, around 5 a.m., the nurse comes back. Fuck. And she's like, you, she recognizes her. She's like, you, come here. The nurse comes around. Like, you listen to me. I gave birth to two kids in this life. I know what pains look like, okay? What I had yesterday was an unexplainable amount of pain. And it's my right as a person who stays in that hospital to ask you for my dose of anesthesia. And you promised it anyways. And there's a lot of different stereotypes on women of color being able to handle a massive amount of pain and exaggerating around it. But that was not the case. So you... Oh my God. <laughs> the way she explained it was so funny. But again, emotional labor. Yes. And because she's yes. fierce, she, she would not have left the hospital without roasting that nurse because I know how she rolls. But not every woman has the strength to go through that. No. You know? Which is so bad. And I mean, in, in there was this haze in France of Naomi Musega, who's a 22 years old, who died because of that. So this is actually very serious. She's a black woman, of course. And she called the ambulance and she basically told them with a very low voice. You can actually hear the recording, which is heartbreaking. And she basically told them, I, I, there's something weird, you know, with me. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to die. She tells them, I'm going to die like three times. Okay. The person taking the call, they're laughing. There are two of them. They're laughing, saying, yeah, she's saying that she's going to die. The other one laughs. Yeah, okay, whatever. And Okay, madame, uh, you're not going to die or whatever. Just like really taking such a condescending approach to it. And of course, they sent an ambulance way too late. They took their time and she died. And that's how 
racist stereotypes in the medical institution kills women of color. This is extremely serious. No, this is no joke. Holy shit. Also, just to provide a, a bit more figures and data, and that's specific to the U.S., the level of black women dying or their kids dying while giving birth is twice higher than white women. Black women also face a much higher level of blood pressure. They also face what we call network stress. So we actually feel the stress of people around us when they are stressed, and that creates also a higher cancer rate, stroke, and heart diseases. African-American women are also more likely to die of breast cancer. So, I mean, this whole situation is extremely real. And um, that brings me to a point of um, also talking about the life expectancy of transgender women of color, because that's also a very, very tricky intersection where some people refuse to take care of you, they refuse to treat transgender patients, they refuse to uh, rent to them, to sell to them, which means that some of them have to live in very precarious uh, situations. A lot of people still refuse to employ transgender women of color as well. There's a lot of violence, whether at, at a state level or personal level, and that drives the figure of their life expectancy at only 31 in the United States. 31 years old. Holy shit. Which is really hard to believe, but it's true. So, yes, the few numbers to put onto this uh, extremely real and sad situation yes. and uh, helping all of y'all lovers to deconstruct all the stereotypes. And I mean, we can joke around me being chosen in a basketball team when mm -hmm. I was 13, but the impact that it can have throughout my life is actually much exactly, more serious. Exactly. And it's connected to, I mean, you have this one person who you are seeing and you think, ah, yeah, that great basketball player, he really has it in his blood. And you think that's a quite harmless mm -hmm. assumption. And maybe you even think you're saying a nice thing. Maybe it's, it's a compliment because mm -hmm. that dude is just so powerful or whatever. But the way it transforms throughout our lives um, on the other, on the other end of the spectrum, This means that our lives are in danger. I don't want to imagine how afraid your mom must have been. And thanks for taking one for the team and mm -hmm. calling that nurse out. But I've, I've felt that threat too. What it means to fuck. Now I'm on my own. That's a terrible thing. And I think it's really important to see all those instances as connected. It's not just one funny image of a black man being the fastest again. <laughs> This transforms into something real. So I think we have come to our Women of Color We Want to Celebrate section. Yes. All right, all right. Can I start? Please, babe. Okay, cool. So we've been talking a lot about women of color in the US and Central Europe lately. So we wanted to talk about people who are not usually in the center of attention. This is why I interviewed a Roma activist from Serbia, whose name is Jelena Jovanovic. She is working for Ergo Network, which is a European Roma grassroots organization network. And she has a really interesting story that I would like to share with you. So different than what many people would expect, she did not grow up in a Roma community, but in a more assimilated or a mixed environment in Serbia. And her dad was 
aroma and experienced a lot of racism because of that and anti-gypsyism and so he wanted to protect his kids and also was very ashamed of this heritage and wanted to hide their identity away mm. so what she learned from her early childhood on is that it's actually not okay to be Romani and it's better to be something else right. so they basically suppressed this identity until her late 20s when once she was searching for a job actually met a blind friend who told her to go to the aroma inclusion office and search for a job there and that was actually the first time that somebody so openly approached her being Roma and I find it very beautiful that yeah. it was actually a blind friend so there she actually started to work in schools in a Roma environment and experienced that there are just so many different forms of being Roma and not this one terrible stereotype of people who are basically beggars and stealing a very poor uneducated that's it so yeah of course nobody yeah. wants to identify with that and then she saw that it's not true and there is so much more mm -hmm. to that identity and um, yes on the other hand she also experienced a lot of misogynistic sentiment and that was the first time she got in touch with feminist theory mm. and uh, started started studying gender studies and found out that actually what Roma feminists face is very similar to what other feminists of color movements have already dealt with, especially in the black feminist movement. Right. There's where she learned about the struggle of being a woman in a Roma movement and being a Roma in a women's movement and how all these intersections are connected. Then she started to study at the Central European University and The thing about that was it was not just academic, but it was also really empowering Roma to fight for Roma rights. And today she's advocating for Roma rights, especially for the acknowledgement of anti-gypsyism that is so prevalent. And hate crimes against Roma are not even defined as hate crimes. And she thinks that this is the most harmful thing because people don't think that it's a stereotype. They just take it for For granted that's that's real yeah she told me that also in dating this is something so she's been yeah, yeah she's been talking to to a dude who who said that yeah he doesn't have a problem with roma he just doesn't like when um, when they beg and then drive home with their mercedeses and oh, she was yeah. like wait a second where you got that from where did you did he ever and then he was like oh Oh, well, that's a stereotype right there. But it's so deeply rooted, this stereotype, that people just don't get that. Wait, there's They more to that. Like exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I found that really interesting and also how she is out there and open about her identity today and that it's so different since she has been working in an educational background since she's not living in poverty she's not identified as as a roma so she really has to convince people of that mm -hmm. so once you are not this image people say like oh well but you're not one of those yeah, exactly. right yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, yeah i found that super interesting i think it decolonized my mind a little more <laughs> and that was really beautiful <laughs> Very powerful story. Yes. And also she uh, she wrote a book called The Romani Women's Movement, Struggles and Debates in Central and Eastern Europe, which is a collection of perspectives by feminist Roma activists. And give it a try. Dope. Yes. So the second woman of color I would like to celebrate is Rokaya Diallo, who is a French journalist, 
writer and filmmaker. She has a podcast too, which is called Kif Terras, which translate roughly mm, into, I guess, uh, well, Kif, Kif is, a, yeah, is a slang for love, so like love your race. Exactly. Which she does with another extremely cool activist with Asian descent who's called Grassley, and the, the podcast is super dope, but I invite all of you all to listen to it. Very cool. Yes, and um, she is amazing. She is very vocal about racist and Islamophobic and anti-gypsyism bullshit and every kind of bigotry on Twitter. And she gets a lot of hate for being so outspoken, as you can probably imagine. She received rape threats all through her online life and even made a documentary about it called Networks of Hate that is covering that hate speech and freedom of speech online. She was actually listed as this 30th sixth out of the 100 most influential French women by Slate and appears among the 30 most influential black figures in Europe on Britain's powerful media's ranking. And uh, she has a a great TED talk too that I think is really very important to listen to. It's called Don't Try to Fit In, Make the World Embrace Who You Are. And I think that's for so many people of color such an important lesson to learn that you don't continuously try to adapt to some norms that are just not right, that might not be what you actually want, but you were taught early on that your identity isn't okay. The thing that she says is to make the world embrace you who you are, you need to tell your own truth. You need to add your story to what is called history. If people put a label on you, tell them who you really are and don't be what they expect you to be. Be disruptive. Claim your identity, even if it makes people uncomfortable. Define yourself in your own terms. Yes! Yes, that's so powerful and so great. Yeah, really listen to that. It was really eye-opening for me again because... Yes, we've been talking about this so much, about this whole bridging, how we're always trying to make ourselves understandable Mm -hmm. to people who could actually, if they wanted to, if they made the effort, they could understand what we're talking about. And we wouldn't have to break it down to little bits that are very easily digestible. You can also just be your own person. And by just standing out there and being not ashamed of yourself and being unapologetic, you are already the biggest lessons to learn. Rich! Yes! So I have two women of color I would love to celebrate. One of them is from Finland and it's actually very similar to the sisters from uh, Sweden that I celebrate in the latest episode. I have something with the Nordics these days. Uh, And her name is Koko Hubara and she basically created this ultra super unbelievably cool media that's basically the first culture media for brown girls by brown girls and she's the editor-in-chief of that platform which is called Ruskiat Titot I hope I pronounced that uh, properly and it's basically the first media for brown people uh, by brown people in Finland she's very vocal about um, many different things and she goes out there on different media in Finland and she has an ultra cool Instagram page I invite you all to check it out and yeah it's basically just another reminder that when you don't see yourself out there you know what stand up and go create your own shit because (laughs) that's sometimes the most efficient way um yes and i also just want to mention real quick because i had this feedback uh, quite a bit 
we always systematically put the references of all the women that we celebrate in the episode description. So when you go on SoundCloud, for example, uh, whenever we describe all the episodes, there's also the names and the link to the women that we celebrate, a link to their work, to their music, to their you know media or whatever. And also every Wednesday on Twitter, we also do a little follow up with a shout out to all the women we celebrate. So if you look for the names, you don't have to like, you know, pin it down as we speak. Everything is to be found on the episode description. The second woman I want to celebrate is from Italy with origins from Congo and her name is Cecil Kachetukienge, who's, uh, I believe, the only black woman MEP mm-hmm. um, in the European Parliament. So she's members of um, the European Parliament uh, from the group of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats. She's extremely vocal about racism towards black people in Europe specifically because she had to go through an, a ridiculous amount of hate uh, discourse when she got elected, when she got into politics and her being compared as animals and monkeys and just receiving the worst possible racist comments. Thankfully, she got a lot of support from other MEPs and stuff. And she also is the one who created the um, European Parliament Week of People of African Descent, which happened in May last year. And um, she's just an extremely important role model, I find. But I just really hope for the future black women MEP that they f- can focus on their actual work and not do anti-racism work mm-hmm. just because they go through all of that shit. Yes. So I want to mention. But I celebrate her. I thank her for all the amazing work she's doing. And I, uh, I just really hope that there is, you know, throughout the years going to be more and more Cecil Kashetru Kenge out there. Mm-hmm. Shout out to her. That's it, lovers. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Vocal About It. If you enjoyed the conversation, show this sister some love. We'd love to see some five-star rating on Apple Podcast. Share the podcast with your loved ones as well and to all of the others. Make sure to follow us on Twitter for updates with the handle at vocalabout underscore it. And if you have any questions, love declarations, or that you want to partner for some cool shit, do drop us an email on vocalaboutit at gmail.com. Ciao, lovers.